Good morning. Let's read from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. In your pew Bibles, you can find it on page uh, 1023. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Good morning, church. Um, Let me pray for our time. Ask the Lord to meet with us. God, would you use your word to minister to your people? Uh, Would you meet with us now, Lord? Would you feed your kids the meal that they need to satisfy hungry souls? I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I am an average bowler who comes from a family of bowlers. Uh, According to starsandstripes.com, a beginner bowler scores about 50 to 70 points per game. An average bowler is more around 130, 150. Good bowlers are getting up into 200s, and of course the pros are averaging mid-200s, etc. And in fact, I learned that my great-great-great-grandmother was a professional bowler. Uh, And then she even bowled a perfect game, a 300 one time. So I come from a family of bowlers. Some of you know your family legacies and histories. Perhaps you've done Ancestry.com or something like that and found out that you have some distant relative from royalty or uh, you're connected to some famous entrepreneur or perhaps a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Um, Well, I, I come from a family of bowlers. My parents actually met in a bowling alley. Uh, Yes, I do own my own shoes and ball, so I save that $2.50 when I go bowling. I don't have to rent the shoes, I own it. Um, And even my four-year-old daughter, Lily, is getting into bowling. Uh, In fact, just this last week, our family went bowling, and she went for the first time. And by the second game, she she had the pattern down. Uh, She she knew to keep her fingers clear from the, uh, the ball return, Uh, She was able to pick up her little orange six-pound ball, scurry over to that that kitty ramp that helps direct the ball down the lane. She'd shove it down, do the walk back, watch the pins fall, do a shimmy, and then high-five everyone. Because that's what bowlers do. She had a knack for it. Uh, And Lily's characteristics, Lily's response, her knack for it, uh, signifies, perhaps, that she comes from a family of bowlers. Uh, So my ability is a sign that I come from a family of bowlers. Uh, my parents' ability, their parents' parents, and parents' parents, and the legacy of we're a family of bowlers. So you get my point. And here's, here's what I'm trying to illustrate for us, is that kids possess signs that attribute what family they come from. The, the kids possess certain signs of what family they belong to. And in the letter that we've been studying in 1 John, John indicates there's two types of families in the world. The family of God on one hand, and the family of the devil on the other. He explains that in chapter 3, verse 8. And each family has kids, and these kids have observable 
traits that signify what, what family they belong to. And since there's only two families in the world, the question is, uh, do you know which one you're in? Do you know what family you're in? And how confident are you in that answer? Because God's kids look like God's son. So the goal in the next 25 minutes is I'd like to help you evaluate what family you're in. And my prayer is that by considering three different signs of God's kids, that you would grow in your confidence that you really truly are a child of God. And I guess, of course, by negative consequence, as I draw a line in the sand of what signifies God's family, perhaps some of you might be exposed to faith, fake faith, fraudulent faith, that isn't signifying that you actually come from the family of God. But my hope is that the majority of you would grow in confidence as you see that you really are God's kids. So how about this? I, how about I give you the signs up front and then unpack them for you? Will that, will that be helpful? Here are the three signs that we're going to consider. Here's how you know that you're in the, the family of God according to our passage this morning. First, first sign is that in some measure, if you're truly God's kids, you will believe like Jesus. And second, you will love like Jesus. And third, third sign is you will overcome like Jesus. If you're truly God's co- child, if you're truly God's kid, you will show these three signs in some measure because you will believe like the Son, and you will love like the Son, and you will overcome sin, Satan, and the sting of death like the Son. Because God's kids look like God's Son. So the question is, do you look like God's Son? So let's begin by asking the first question. Do you look like Jesus in belief? Belief. Notice with me, our passage begins and ends with belief. It's a belief sandwich. Verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Belief is an essential quality of all God's kids. This is the first sign. And notice it's not some generic belief or some generic faith. It's a particular faith. God's kids believe like the Son believes. Have you ever wondered, what does Jesus believe about himself? Have you ever asked that question? I think Scripture shows us and tells us that he believes two things, at least, about himself. One, that he's the promised one, that he is the Christ, which is what John is talking about in verse 5. Sorry, verse 1 of chapter 5. But also, Jesus believes that he is the child of God, that God is his Father, So first, Jesus believed he was the Christ. You might recall the story in Luke 24 when two men were walking seven miles from Jerusalem and they were discussing sort of what would have been the CNN CNN headline of the day. You know, imagine the title is Missing Person and the subtitle with the caption, Witnesses say that uh, Jesus was crucified three days ago but now he's risen and his body's missing. So these two men are discussing this story, this headline story. And as the two men are discussing this story, some mysterious figure comes behind them. We as the reader know it's Jesus, but they don't know it's the resurrected Christ. And this is what Jesus says to them in Luke chapter 4, verse 25. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus believed that all of scripture points to him. In other words, Jesus believed that all the promises made in the Old Testament, all the anticipations of a coming Christ, is found in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus believed about himself. So do you believe like this? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Because John in verse 1 says that whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. This is a sign of real belief. Because you would believe like the Son believes. For example, that means, this means that Jesus believed that he really is the offspring of Eve who will crush, who did crush the serpent's head, Satan's head, Genesis 3, 15. Jesus believed that he was the blessing, the true blessing of the nations, and that through him all the nations will be blessed, Genesis 12. He believed of himself that he really is the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, the promised sacrifice God provided, Genesis 22. Jesus believed in himself that he alone is the stairway to heaven that bridges heaven and earth, Genesis 28. Jesus believed about himself that he is the, the true rock of the church, the one who was split in two for you, so you can drink from the well of life, Exodus 17. Jesus believed himself, about himself that he is the Savior that was lifted high above the pole, that if you look to him, you can be saved, Numbers 21. And Jesus believed that he is the promised prophet, sent by God to preach the word of God, Deuteronomy 18. That's just seven examples of Old Testament anticipations of Christ. And Christ believed that all these anticipations were found alone in him. He is the Christ. He is the promised one of God. Or if you'd like a more verbatim account of Jesus' belief about himself, consider Jesus' famous conversation with the woman at the well in John 4. After confronting the woman, about her promiscuity in life, Jesus says to her, or sh- sorry, first she says to him, I know that a Messiah called the Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And how does Jesus reply? Jesus declares, I am the one. I'm the one speaking to you. I am he. Friends, Jesus is the Christ. This is what he believed about himself. Do you believe like the Son believed? Do you believe that Jesus, he and he alone, is the Savior whom the Old Testament indicates and all the prophecies are fulfilled in? Do you believe like this? Because in the first verse of our text, John says that the children of God believe like Christ believed. Second, Jesus believed he was the Son of God. John 5, 17, Jesus says, My Father is working until now, and now I am working. Clearly, is. Jesus is saying that the Father is his, his personally, by implication that makes him the Son. Jesus believed he was the Son of God. We also know that Jesus believed he was the Son because he shared in the family business. John 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. I mentioned earlier that I was an average bowler who came from a family of bowlers. Well, more significantly, here Jesus is saying he's a resurrector, and he comes from a family of resurrectors who are in the family business of bringing dead things back to life. This is what Jesus believed about himself. So, child of God, do you believe like this? Because in verse 5, this is what John says all God's kids believe about Jesus. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 
So I know today many people, perhaps coworkers, bloggers, perhaps family members, perhaps some in this room, say they believe in Jesus, but upon closer look, all that you'll find is that they just believe that Jesus is a, a good teacher or a, a good moral example or that he's a good storyteller. Friends, if you believe Jesus simply at that, in that regard, I'm afraid that's not enough. I'm afraid belief in Jesus that he's just a good teacher and that he's just a teacher among many teachers or just a prophet among many prophets, then, then that's a lack of belief because Jesus believed differently about himself. He believed far more. He believed that he was the Christ, the promised one, and he believed he was the son, the son of God. So friends, if this is all you believe, that, that Jesus is just a good teacher or a good moral example, but not Savior and Lord and the only hope of, in life and death, then that might signal that you're not a Christian. That might signal a fake faith. Because God's kids believe like God's son. But if you are believing this morning, which I hope is the majority of us in the room, be encouraged. If you believe in Jesus in this way, be encouraged. This is a sign that you are God's true kid. So this might be a good time for a little brief commercial break. I just want to sort of put a little disclaimer on what I'm describing today. In this sermon, I'm not answering the question how to be saved. I'm answering the question, how can you know if you're truly saved or test if you're truly saved? I'm focusing on signs of true salvation, not the source of salvation. So I just want to be clear. I'm not saying that believing the right things, doing the right things, saves you because that would be a works-based salvation. That would be a, a salvation predicated on your own works. Right belief doesn't save you because even demons sort of know who Jesus is and they're not the children of God. However, right belief does signal right faith, real faith. So the source of real faith is God alone. That's why I think John uses the phrase three times in our passage, born of God. Those who believe, verse 1, are born of God. Then he says later, again in verse 1, at the end of verse 1, they are born of him. And then later in verse 4, everyone who has been born of God. Birth of God is the source of real salvation. Like parents are the source of the life of a newborn, God is the source of spiritual life for his kids. So God is the source. What we're talking about and what I'm trying to signify for us is signs. So I want to just really make that clear that right belief is a sign of new birth, but not the source of new birth. I'm teaching simply that if, I'm not teaching that if you just believe there are all the right things, then you'll be saved. This would be a works-based salvation. But by grace, you've been saved. Grace is the source. God is the source. Okay, commercial break over. Hopefully I didn't overstate that. I just want to make that abundantly clear. We're talking about signs this morning, not the source. So, in summary, sign number one, God's kids believe like Jesus, that he's the Christ and that he's the Son of God. That's sign one. Sign two. Second, if you'd like to grow in your confidence that you're truly God's child, ask yourself, do I love like Jesus? Do I look like Jesus in love? Look at the second half of verse 1 of our text. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. 
Church, God's kids love bi-directionally. God's kids love both their father and the father's kids. They love daddy and they love their siblings. It may signal a fake faith if you say that Jesus is my homeboy, but Christians, I can't stand those people. Or the inverse is true. How strange would it be if someone said to you, oh, I love God's people, but God, I can't stand him. All he does is give rules. I can't stand him. I don't want to know him. I want nothing to do with him. This love would be contradictory. But God's kids love like Jesus did, which is bi-directionally. Love for God and love for the kids. So how did Jesus love? Well, John 14, 3. So that, God, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me, Jesus says. Or John 15. Jesus teaching his disciples says, If you keep my commandments, I will abide in my love. You will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. In both quotations, loving the Father means obeying his commands. And the exact same truth is being taught by John in our text. Verse 2, by this we know we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commands. Verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, love and obedience go hand in hand with real faith. Some people teach that love and law are sort of competitors, as if they're antithetical to one another. But love and law aren't competitors. They're actually complements. Some people teach that God's commands are a burden. This is probably why John makes that little comment in verse 3 that God's commandments aren't burdensome. And we see this teaching that God's commandments aren't burdensome throughout all of Scripture. Church, you need to know God's commands aren't a burden for you. They're intended for your well-being, your good instruction. God's commands are meant to protect you. Genesis 2 God instructed Adam, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Because why? Well, God's protecting Adam. He says, in that day, you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. God's instructions are trying to protect Adam from death. So God's commands are designed to protect you. They're also designed to delight you. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. God's commands are meant to delight you. God's commands are meant to bless you. Deuteronomy 11. If you indeed obey my commands that I command to you today, God says, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart, he will give rain to your land in its season, early rain and later rain. And you, that you may gather in your grain, your wine, and your oil. God's commands, friends, are life-giving, not life-taking. So those who insist that the gospel of Christ brings no obligations is a false teacher. Again, let me be clear. Salvation is a free gift. As the hymn goes, uh, Nothing in my hands do I bring simply to the cross I cling. But the cross you cling to does have commands on you. Your previous master, Satan, had horrible commands, burdensome commands. But that has been replaced by your new master, Jesus. And he still does have commands on your life. New orders, 
to love bidirectionally, to love the Father, and to love the fam. But these new orders aren't a burden. It's not a burden to love the children of God. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm a gentle, gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' commands are not a burden. Jesus loved his Father by obeying his Father's commands. Not only did Jesus love his Father, but he also loved his siblings. How? Well, Jesus, the gospel accounts Jesus loving his siblings by feeding them, by weeping with them, by celebrating with them, by healing them, by praying with them, and ultimately by dying for them. Jesus shows his love for the God's fam by dying for his brothers and sisters, you, church. Matthew 16, Jesus taught his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and on the third day be raised again. His motivation was to die for his siblings so that they can live. 1 Peter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the Son, loves his siblings even unto death. And in some measure, God's kids will love their siblings too. Do you love God's kids? I once heard a story of a boy who had a unique commute to school. Here's how the story went. Someone once met a lad going to school. This was in the days when transportation wasn't provided. And the lad was carrying on his back a smaller boy who was unable to walk. And a stranger said to the lad, do you carry him to school every day? That's a heavy burden for you to carry. And he said, he's no burden, said the boy. He's my brother. You see, God's kids love God's fam by caring for one another. So ask yourself, have you fed some people in this room? Have you wept with some people in this room? Have you nursed for, cared for, provided a meal for someone in this room? Have you celebrated with someone in this room? Have you prayed with someone in this room? If so, then you're loving like Jesus loved. So be encouraged. You look like a child of God. Some of you might feel very weak this morning. But even the weakest among us can still love God's kids. Church, God's kids love like the Son loved. Jesus loved bidirectionally, love for the Father and love for the fam. So we've considered two signs so far. God's kids believe like Jesus did. And second, God's kids love like Jesus loved. Now, third and finally, God's kids overcome like his son. Ask yourself this morning, do you look like Jesus in overcoming? Verse four of our text. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except for the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? God's kids overcome like Jesus. John repeated the phrase, overcome the world, three times in just two verses. 
overcome the world is mentioned in chapter 2 of the same letter. Earlier, John defines it. And you can, one author summarizes the world as sort of anything that is hostile towards God. It's a, so our, our victory is a threefold victory. A victory over the three S's, Satan, sin, and the sting of death. Consider Jesus' parting words to his disciples in John 16. Jesus said to them, I have said these things to you that you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, church. I have come the world. Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the three S's. Jesus has overcome sin. He's overcome Satan, and he's overcome the sting of death through his life, work, and death on the cross, his empty tomb, his resurrected life, and his current reign seated at the right hand of God. Christ has defeated the three S's, sin, Satan, and the sting of death. These are the three greatest threats of your life. So ask yourself, have you experienced victory? Have you overcome sin and Satan and the devil and the sting of death in some measure? How do we evaluate this? This is kind of sensitive. It might even feel a bit wrong or awkward, but I think this is exactly what John is teaching us to do in these five verses. How do we evaluate if we overcome? Well, I've heavily benefited from one pastor, Kevin DeYoung's advice on how to best evaluate this overcoming. He suggests that we should consider three things. First, the trajectory of our overcoming, the community of our overcoming, and the apology of our overcoming. I think this is very helpful. First, trajectory. When you're considering, have you overcome sin in some measure, or have you overcome the domain and dominion of Satan in some measure, or the sting of death in some measure, first, ask yourself, have I overcome it in some trajectory? Take a longitudinal study approach. For example, don't ask yourself, have I grown in Christ-like speech since Wednesday? Rather, ask yourself, over the past five years, have I grown in more gracious and godly speech? Take a larger trajectory of time. Don't take a small time sample. Take a large time sample and ask yourself, have I grown in some measure in godly speech or Christ-like patience? In the past five years, do I look like the sun in Christ-like patience? Don't ask, have I been more patient today than I was on Wednesday? Take a longer trajectory. <clears throat> That's consideration number one. Consideration number two, consider involving your community as you evaluate. Don't just rely on your own discernment to evaluate how much you have or haven't overcome sin in your life. For example, you might ask someone you live with. Maybe it's a, a roommate or a sibling or a parent or a spouse, or maybe you'll ask a coworker at work. Ask them, over time, have you seen me grow in love and peace and joy and forbearance and kindness or gentleness? Ask them. Because sometimes it's easier for your community to recognize growth in you that evidences, that signifies that you're a true child of God than you can evaluate yourselves. For example, it's almost like that experience when you receive a Christmas card in the mail and you haven't seen these people in a long time. But you look at them and you go, wow, I can't believe that family has changed so much. Look how, look how much bigger little Johnny looks from when I remember him last time. You see, if you're little Johnny, you just look the same to yourself. But if you're the recipient of that card being received by a different family, a surrounding community, a year later, it's easier to spot the change. But to yourself, sometimes you don't seem that different. 
Sometimes your community spots to change better. So ask your community, have you seen me over, overcome sin, Satan, and the sting of death in some way? Because sometimes your community might see it better than you do. And then finally, uh, evaluate if you've overcome through apology. <clears throat> Growing in godliness doesn't mean being perfect. John, in this letter, has made that abundantly clear. It doesn't mean being perfect, but it does mean being repentant. God's kids turn from their sin and turn towards God. It doesn't mean that they perfectly do this, but as Kevin DeYoung comments, part of growing in grace isn't to say you're sinless, but, to practice, but the practice of coming to Christ when you do sin. God's kids overcome like God's son. Do you turn from sin when you do sin? So have you grown considering the trajectory of overcoming? Or perhaps ask your community, have you seen me grow in the three S's, overcoming sin, Satan, and the sting of death? Or consider your apology. I think these are three helpful pastoral ways that we can consider. Have we overcome like Christ has overcome? So those are the three signs. Jesus' kids, God's kids, love like God's son. So ask yourself, do you believe like Jesus? Do you love like Jesus? Have you overcome like Jesus? If you, if you can, say yes to these things. Rejoice. Praise God. Grow in your confidence that you truly are a son or a daughter in Christ, a true child of God. I mentioned in the beginning that I was an average bowler who comes from a family of bowlers. And though I was not, I'm not a perfect bowler, I still possessed some signs of coming from a bowling family. Do you possess the signs of being God's kid in some measure? If so, my prayer is that you grow in your confidence, that you truly are God's child today. Because God's kids look like God's son. Now Trevor is going to come and uh, pray a word of application for us. Father God, we do thank you that we are your children. Thank you that we are born into your family. Lord, we want to look like your son. We want to look like Jesus, to walk and talk like Jesus. Um, I pray that you would help us to um, help us to believe like Jesus did, help us to love and to obey like Jesus, help us to overcome like Jesus did. We thank you for his example, and we pray that you would give us the strength and the ability to do these things. Amen.